Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics to that hymn 300 years ago. And of course, it's based on the psalm that David wrote 3,000 years ago. And so it's a great reminder to us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great shepherd of the sheep who continues to feed and lead and provide for his people until the day that we are eternally home with him. What a joy that is to know. And thank you, choir, for that wonderful reminder through song this morning. At this point, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's on page 240 in your pew Bible. 2 Samuel 4, page 240 in the pew Bible. As we return to our series on the life of David. I have been dying to get back to this series. I've really enjoyed the missions messages over the last few weeks, but have been dying to get back to this text. Uh, But I've noticed that there have also been a lot of people dying in this text. (laughs) Did you notice over the recent weeks what's been happening? The final chapter of 1 Samuel begins with bad news, saying, the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Verse 6 says, Saul died, that is King Saul, and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Talk about a bloodbath. Then in 2 Samuel 1, David kills the Amalekite who claims to have killed Saul. In chapter 2, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, picks a fight with Joab, the commander of David's army. And They have a dozen guys from each army fight each other at the Pool of Gibeon, and all 24 of them die. And then a major battle ensues, and uh, Abner's men are fighting against David's men under the leadership of Joab, and Joab's brother Asahel starts chasing Abner through the woods, and Abner tells him to stop. You know, don't pursue me. Why should I kill you? He doesn't let up. So Abner ends up killing Asahel. And by the time the battle is over, 400 men have died, 95% of them from Abner's army. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, we read, there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Saul's sole surviving son, Ishbosheth, is trying hard to hold on to his father's kingdom, but he is fast losing his grip. Later in chapter 3, Abner, the commander of the army, uh, defects from Ishbosheth and goes over to David, but only to be killed by Joab for, in order to get revenge on Abner killing Joab's brother Asahel. So again, there's a lot of bloodshed going on in these chapters, and that brings us to chapter 4, where more bloodshed occurs. So you can stay encouraged and excited about... Um, these graphic accounts of of murder and such. Uh, The title of today's sermon is The Murder of Ishbosheth, and it takes place in 2 Samuel 4. After I preach this morning, Brother Rich Christman and I are going to present an overview of our missions trip to India a few weeks ago. You may wonder how we're going to transition from the sermon to the slideshow. Which is to say, what does the murder of Ishbosheth have to do with missions in India? And I can assure you, a lot. A lot. 
Because just as God was establishing and strengthening the kingdom of his servant David in ancient Israel, so God has established and is strengthening the kingdom of his own dear son, David's greater descendant, today. Furthermore, throughout history, in David's time and in our time, God graciously uses people to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his promises. But Scripture also repeatedly shows, and we see this today, that there is a right way and a wrong way to participate with God in the establishing and in the building up of His kingdom. God is sovereign. He will bring His kingdom about. He will establish and strengthen it. And He does use people to make that happen. God is sovereign, but we are responsible for the choices we make and the things that we do, and we will give an account to the king himself. In this chapter, two men try to bring about the kingdom their way instead of God's way. As a result of their actions, they think they're going to be praised when actually they are punished. The very king that they thought would commend them commands them to be executed. So let's look at this account in 2 Samuel 4 and see how it applies to our lives and even to our mission as a church today. In verses 1 to 7, we read about the cowardly conspirators. 2 Samuel 4, beginning in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beerath. For Beerath also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerathites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimen the Berethite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. This grisly murder is all the more heinous because these men were two of Ishbosheth's most trusted soldiers. They used their guerrilla warfare tactics to ambush their own commander in chief and kill him while he's taking a nap on his own bed. The deed is described in verses 5 to 6, and you may have noticed that it is retold with more detail in verse 7. Sometimes the Hebrew writers will use repetition. They'll start to say something and they'll back up and repeat it again a second time with a little more detail. You see this in the account of creation where a man and woman are created in chapter 1 and then he kind of reviews it and retells it with further detail in chapter 2. So usually the point of repetition is for the sake of emphasis. And here the writer, the narrator, is clearly emphasizing something. And what he's emphasizing is how cowardly these men are. Um, 
he, he is, it's as if to say in a mocking tone, look at how macho these two captains are. They are so macho that they would kill a man who's taking a nap on his own bed. Remember, the narrator has been describing David's house getting stronger and stronger and Saul's house getting weaker and weaker. It begins the chapter by telling us that Ishbosheth is scared and all of Israel is dismayed. And the only other potential successor to Saul's throne is his crippled grandson. So here is a picture of utter weakness. We're actually going to read about Ishbosheth later on in 2 Samuel. I think it's in chapter 9. So why does he mention him here? To emphasize the weakness of Saul's house. These men may appear to be bold and courageous, but the narrator exposes them for what they truly, for what they truly are, cowardly conspirators. Now next, look at the spiritual spin they put on their act of wickedness. Verses 7, the second half of the verse, in verse 8. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night, that's the desert land, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who has sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. In other words, we are God's gift to you. The Lord has avenged your enemy through us. Picture the scene. They present the head of Ishbosheth to David uh, as a trophy of God's justice working through them. As one commentator put it, they come with blood on their hands but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. Ouch. But brothers and sisters, this serves as a warning to us. For there are recabs and bayonets who exist in the church today. People who use spiritual lingo to justify their sin. For them, theology is not a truth that gives rise to the worship of God, but a means by which they can seek to justify themselves. This happens all the time on an individual level. We can be guilty of it in our own homes and relationships. I have seen this play out most blatantly in times of divorce, where a husband leaves his wife or vice versa for someone else, and then they claim, using spiritual terms, that God brought them together. That the first marriage is a mistake, they weren't following the will of God, but now God has brought this new person into their life, and after all, God is love, so God would want them to be happy, and so on and so forth, using a lot of spiritual mumbo-jumbo, speaking about theology in very vague, general terms, in order to justify a very specific sin on their part. And this sort of theological spin can be applied to almost any sin, People take Scripture out of context and make it say anything they want to in order to justify and rationalize their sin and yet make themselves think that they are still good with God and to make sure that you are good with them and might even affirm them in what they have done or are doing. This happens not only on an individual level all the time, but also at an institutional level. We think of the, the state, a California governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, last fall, do you remember? 
He was promoting abortion on billboards. And what did he use as kind of the, the motivational thing? He, he quoted Jesus' own words in Mark 12, 31. Love your neighbor as yourself, for this is the greatest commandment. Incidentally, in that instance, he was justifying murder, just like Rechab and Baana did. But this also happens with religious institutions who are guilty of putting a spin on sin in order to stay on good terms with the cultures. They want to be all things to all people, not in a Pauline way, but in a sinful way, in a compromising way. And this is seen most readily with religious institutions and denominations today, specifically over the affirmation of the LGBTQ lifestyle. There are more than this, but this is kind of the big thing going on in religious institutions today. And basically what they're saying is that the way, if you're really going to love the sinner, you must affirm their lifestyle and welcome them as they are with no intention of changing them because God created them that way. And so they will use this scriptural language to affirm what God clearly condemns and what is clearly contradictory to Scripture. And that's why the Webster United Methodist Church voted this past Tuesday to disaffiliate from their denomination because of a growing departure from the Word of God in a capitulation to the culture. That same day, this past Tuesday, Al Mohler stated on his daily program, The Briefing, sexual liberation requires a new religion. And that's true. Because it's not the religion of the Bible. It's not the way of salvation. Sexual liberation requires a new religion. And, and Moeller called it going down the road of theological insanity. It's craziness. A couple Sundays ago, Rod Whitney preached in this pulpit and reminded us from the book of Jude and as a cross-reference to Second Peter that we are not, as Peter says, we are not to be carried away by the error of lawless people who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. They put a spiritual spin on their sin in order to justify and rationalize it. Jude sounds the same alarm, saying, ungodly people have wormed their way into the churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that God in His grace welcomes us as we are. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Amen? But God's grace does not leave us the way we are. The Holy Spirit indwells us and transforms us in Christ-likeness over the course of our lives. The Bible says in 3 John that, or 1 John 3, that he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. One of the evidences that we've been truly, been truly saved is that we seek to be like Christ and we make it our aim to please him. Jude goes on to say, the condemnation of these lawless people who, who would use God's grace to encourage immoral lives, their condemnation was recorded long ago because they have denied our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And all that is to say that no amount of spin can justify a sin. No amount of spin 
can justify a sin. And we see this in David's response to Rechab and Baana, the righteous retribution in verses 9 to 12. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. That was back in chapter 1 with the Amalekite. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Well, Rechab and Baana did not get what they were expecting, did they? Didn't get what they were hoping for. Instead of being commended, they were condemned. Instead of being exalted, they were executed. And this act of justice by David, the king-elect as it were, in a little town called Hebron, is a foretaste of the divine justice that will be enforced throughout the entire earth when David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, consummates his kingdom. It's already been established. It is being strengthened. But the final kingdom has yet to come, which is why we pray, Thy kingdom come. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphatically declared, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Fearful words. But the same words that should strike fear in the heart of those who would use God's name while refusing to do God's will should encourage us who are believers and are seeking, however imperfectly, to please the Lord and suffer injustices in this life as a result. All desire, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. But the Bible also says that one day God's people will be vindicated. 2 Thessalonians, Paul assures Timothy, uh, or assures the church, that God will come to afflict those who have afflicted you. And we will enter into our eternal rest and be rewarded for being faithful to the Lord. And our faithfulness, even then, is owing to His grace. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but one day God will vindicate them. This is true of the Muslim who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and yet is disowned by her family. It's true of the high school student who gets mocked at school because he or she believes that God created the world. It's true of the employee that gets passed over a promotion because of his Christian profession and integrity. It's true of a wife whose husband has gone after a newer model 
and has manipulated the legal system to leave her with nothing. I love what one commentator said. Whatever the particulars, God's people must be assured that the time will come when the Davidic king will institute Hebron justice throughout the earth. And that's why we don't lose heart. That's why we don't give up. Because there is a day coming when our king will reign throughout heaven and earth and will vindicate his people. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our job, our privilege is to preach the good news, to express our faith in love. And it's our job and privilege to leave the results with God, knowing that his word and his work will never fail. The question that I want to impress upon you is, are you ready for that day when the king will judge the earth in righteousness? The good news is that every single one of us can be. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago to satisfy God's justice against the sins of those who would believe on him as their savior. And three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, grave to prove that he, not sin, would have the final word. I hope and pray that your faith is in him. And if it is, you have no reason to fear that final judgment, but can eagerly anticipate it with joy when the king of all the earth will rule in righteousness. And this is the message that pastors and churches need to hear today. There is a right way and a wrong way to participate with God in the establishing and the strengthening and the advancing of his kingdom. And that's why I had Pastor Mike read the text that he did, Paul's final charge to Timothy moments ago. Pastor Mike also reminded me earlier this week that at last year's final Together for the, Conf uh, Together for the Gospel conference, a young pastor from Africa named Christian Lawanda reminded of this in a powerful way. And I want you to listen to what he says right now. Timothy, if the word is going to do the work, just preach and God will produce fruit in his own time. He lastly tells him, watch out for how people are and what their preferences are. Chapter 4 verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul tells him people will not endure sound teaching because they prefer heaping teachers upon themselves who will tell them what is necessary and relevant. Interestingly, the focus here is not on the false teacher, but on the false churches who hire and pay as many false teachers as they can to tickle their ears all the way to hell. But as for you, Paul tells Timothy, be sober, be suffering, be evangelistic, fulfill your ministry. Be sober, keep your head focused on the clarity of God's word. Be suffering, suffering precedes glory. The cross precedes the crown and it is not lost on me that there are people in this room right now who have suffered near to the point of death and may very well die when they go back home for the gospel. 
Be evangelistic. Constantly preach Christ and Him crucified. And Timothy, if you do this, if you constrain yourself to just the tasks that God has given you, Timothy, you will fulfill your ministry. Instead of inventing for yourself a whole new set of tasks to do. It often happens in my house that my wife will send me for something. She'll be like, hey babe, I want to cook, so please go get some butter, some sugar, some milk, and some snacks for yourself. What I hear is, hey babe, I want to cook, so please go get some butter, and some snacks for yourself. So I go to the shop, I buy butter, I buy snacks, and a bunch of other things that I think are necessary, and as I'm paying, I'm wondering, I feel like I'm missing something, but ah, I'll be fine. And as I'm carrying the bags of shopping home, I'm feeling really good about myself. What a good husband I am. Look how I'm serving my wife. If other husbands were just like me, this world would be fantastic. I get home, drop the bags, and she's like, thanks. I walk away. Then I hear her ask, babe, where's the milk? I'm like, where's the what now? And so she's looking at the bag. The stuff she asked for isn't there. And then she gives me the look. You know what the look is. It's this uncanny ability God has given our wives to explain an entire paragraph with just one look. And in her look, she's telling me, number one, why didn't you just get the stuff I asked you for? Number two, Christian, you have this thing called a mobile phone. You could have called me and asked me to remind you. But no, I decided this is what we need to be eating with no reference to the person who's actually making the meal. In much the same way, it is easy in our pastoral ministry to decide for ourselves what the church ought to be doing with no reference to the person who said, I will build my church. It's so easy, especially under pressure, to say what this church needs is more engagement. So let's up the entertainment. But brother pastor, the human soul is too heavy an object to be lifted into the presence of God by the twigs of entertainment. We don't need entertainment. We need edification. Let that human soul bear the full weight of God's preaching, or rather let the preaching bear the full weight of that human soul, lift it up into God's presence to see their Savior and soon coming King. Brother Pastor, when we preach, God turns simple sound into spiritual light so that the God who said, let light shine in the darkness, shines in people's hearts that they may see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. With that in mind, let me just leave you with three closing principles as we transition to a song and then a presentation on missions. Number one, the promises of God require patience and purity on our part. If we believe God's word, then we will behave accordingly. It requires patience and it requires purity. And by that I mean right living on our part. Number two, it's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. I remember hearing this from the time I was, I think, fifth grade on up in the Christian school I attended. It was a constant refrain. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right, which is to say that the ends do not justify the means. God expects His work to be done His way according to His Word from start to finish. 
So let us think biblically and behave accordingly. And number three, gratitude begets fidelity. In 2 Samuel 4, 9, David acknowledged the Lord as the one who redeemed his life out of every adversity. In Psalm 116, he said, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Gratitude begets fidelity. When we recount the Lord's many, multiple, infinite faithfulnesses to us, we will want to be faithful to him. Let us do God's work, God's way, fully trusting God's word with a heart full of gratitude and love for all that God has done for us and continues to do to this very day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it exhorts us as your people today. Please strengthen us according to your word and having heard it, let us now heed it. We pray this, that Jesus Christ would be magnified, your church edified, and the lost world around us evangelized, that they too may become your people. We thank you, Lord, for not leaving us clueless regarding your plan, your promises, your purposes, but have fully revealed them to us in your word so that we can love, know, and follow you. We give you praise in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.